Hello and good morning. Yeah, as um, you just heard, as Emily said, I'm, my name's Tim, um, and I've recently taken over um, our Compassion Ministries. Um, so we have a 12 o'clock service, which is a, a congregation on a Wednesday at, at 12 o'clock, where um, we, we, we gather together, we do what we are doing at the moment. We um, worship Jesus together, we hear from God's word, and then we eat together. And we also have a food bank open on that day as well. So if you're interested in getting involved in that, then do talk to me. Also, welcome, especially if it's your first time here at Grace. It's, it's so good to, to have you. I'd love to chat to you after. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I was really encouraged by that worship time in hearing of a God who, who does what he says he will do, that is, that is sovereign in all things, and if he promises something, he will do it, that he works all things according to his glorious plan. And that's what we're looking at today in Esther 4. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to, to chapter 4 in Esther, and we'll have it on the screens as well. In, um, in Esther, we are located in the city of Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire at the time. Um, and it's ruled by this erratic king, King Ahasuerus. And the last chapter finished with this terrible decree that all of God's people, all the Jews across the Persian Empire, would all be put to death. And so we, we meet our characters today in chapter 4, and they've just heard of this news, and they're in great mourning as a result. So verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do you think, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. But if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai 
Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. There are two places described in our passage today. And they are entirely different. They're like night and day. Firstly, we have outside of the palace. And this is a place of, of great weeping and lamentation and mourning. Everywhere outside of the palace where this decree is reached that all the Jews are to be put to death, there is this great sadness that naturally followed. And we have Mordecai, who's taken off his normal clothes and is wearing sackcloth and ashes, symbolizing his, his great mourning at this time. And then we have somewhere entirely different inside the palace. Somehow, the decree that the Jews are to be killed hasn't reached Esther there. She's kind of in the, in the, like the, in the eye of a storm, where everything around her outside of the palace is chaotic. But where she is, she doesn't know about it. She's surrounded by the comforts and securities of the palace, presumably feeling quite safe, and doesn't know about this decree. And far from wearing sackcloth and ashes herself, she, she offers Mordecai these new clothes. And so then we have this conversation between these two very different places, and Haytack kind of running between them backwards and forwards. Mordecai asks her, asks this, this the inside woman, asks the, asks the woman in the palace who has more access to the king, oh, please could you go and speak to the king on our behalf? Please could you go and, and, and plead with him that the Jews wouldn't be put to death? But Esther knows this is no simple request. This is no small favor. And she says in verse 11 that if like the, the king isn't very hospitable. You don't, one doesn't simply walk into the king's inner room. You, you have to be invited in. And if you're not invited in, you go anyway. It's against the law. And you'll be put to death unless the king has favor upon you. And she's got no good reason for thinking that the king will have favor upon her because well, he's not called her in in over 30 days. And she could think of the last queen who stood up to the king, Queen Vashti. What happened to, to her when she stood up to the king? Well, that very same day, she was out the back door. Done with. It doesn't bode well. And aside from all of that, she's, what she's being asked to do is, there's these people who have been under the sentence of death. They're being kind of committed to death. And the job is to go and identify and put herself in with those people. This isn't good for her life expectancy. She's asked to go and identify with these people who anyone in that category are going to be killed. And so it's, it's quite the dilemma for her. Is she going to give up the, the comforts of the palace, the, the safety of the palace where at the moment no one knows that she's a Jew? No one knows that this would apply to her as well. Mordecai says to her, this isn't going to last. The palace isn't a place of, of goodness. And we've seen that over recent weeks. But is she going to trust in the palace and stay there? Or is she going to give up all this comfort? Is she going to risk herself identifying with these people who have been told they're going to be killed? She says, if I perish, I perish. And, and she chooses to go for it. See in verse 16 at the end of our passage. She calls them to fast with her. She has left the ways of the palace behind. The last time she went in to see the king, what did she do at the start of the book? Well, she had a year-long beauty regime to go and see him. 
to win his favor. And, and, and this time we see it in the book of Esther. What does she do? Does she go and buy new makeup and buy new clothes? No, she, she fasts for three days. Gone are the ways of the palace. She is joining with the people of Israel. She's identifying with them. If I perish, I perish. In all of this, Esther points us to Jesus. As she left the, the glory of the palace and the, and the power there to identify with a people who were going to die, who were sentenced to death, becoming like them that she might try and possibly save them, so too Jesus gave up his glory for a time by taking on humanity, by taking on the form of a servant, identifying with us, becoming a man so that he may join with the people who were due to die. Death was the decree over us, but Jesus chose to join us and die in our place. Esther knew that if she did this, she, she might die. Jesus knew in doing this that he would die, that he is a friend of the lost and the weak, a friend of sinners. The book of Esther shows us God's faithful plan to save his people that would culminate in Jesus' cross and resurrection. We don't receive the book of Esther directly, but in the hands of Jesus, who it all points to and who has fulfilled it all. Esther leaves the palace, identifies with God's people. Can we leave the palace? Can we leave the comforts of the world in following Jesus, following him in serving others? He invites us to live like he did. Having, having saved us and redeemed us, he invites us into a life following him, who did not come to serve, but be served. Jesus tells us to, like Esther, to count the cost, to consider what it would mean. Because following Jesus looks like denying our own desires, looks like dying to ourselves, not living the way that the world would have us live, chasing after what seems good to us, chasing after our own pleasures and wants, seeking our own goods as first. And there is a, a sacrifice for us in, in living how he would have us live. There is a, a cost in not pursuing our own pleasures, not doing what the world would see as the good life, and instead following him. Many, many here will have sacrificed money, not bought that car or gone that holiday so that they can be generous to others so they can give to the church. Many will have taken up, uh, not taken on certain jobs or opportunities so they can live in a certain place, so they can serve God there. Many will have not taken on opportunities they wanted to so they can have time to serve others, giving of themselves generously. This is choosing a way of obscurity over worldly glory and isn't how the world would have us to live. I can think of a, a couple who have spent decades of the time and money caring for someone who's seriously ill, not related to them. And that, the world, that doesn't make sense to the world, giving up decades of life for that. The world will never comprehend that. I mean, the father loves it, but the world doesn't understand it. Jesus is a waste. And so we can see this call to, to give up the comforts of the palace, give up the comforts of the world, and to follow in Jesus' life. 
unless we consider this cost and this risk, I think we can find ourselves thinking, what if it all goes wrong? What, what if God doesn't come through to me if I live a, live a life following him? What if it's a waste? What if all along I should have just been following my own path, living what is best for me? And we, we can ask as we read this, how can Esther give up the palace and identify with God's people? How, how can she do this? And we can think of our own lives and think, how can we risk what seems like comfort and safety in following Jesus? How can we have the strength to live for him? The book of Esther answers us by showing us the sovereign rule of God over all things. He is in control and so we can trust him. Look at what Mordecai says in verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God will save his people. Regardless of what we do, God will save his people. But he says, but you and your father's house will perish. The palace is not a place of safety, ultimately. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Here we see God's sovereign rule over all things. Mordecai knows that God is in control, that he, that he will save with or without them because he is all-powerful. He does what he says he will do. And one of the big messages of the book of Esther is that it's God's ruling reign over all of creation. And it's knowing this, that their God rules over everything that enables Esther to risk everything. And we see this encouragement from Mordecai, who, who trusts that their God is more powerful than the king, Ahasuerus. And he, and he encourages Esther to, to believe this as well. You see, the, the king, the Persian king, is, is the most powerful man in the empire. But we see in the start of the book that he can't even control a single person, Queen Vashti, when she, when she didn't, refuses to do what he wants. That ultimately, the king isn't all that powerful. We see in Proverbs 21 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he wills. The king is the most powerful figure in the land, but God can turn a king's heart where he wants to. He is sovereign over even the king. He is powerful over this king in this story. Nothing has happened except from the Lord's decree. All we can remember in chapter 3, when, when Haman cast lots, he cast, cast dice, to decide when they will carry out this plan to kill the Jews. And then we can think of Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. Esther's telling us that God is in control. He is not surprised by Haman's plans. He is not surprised by this evil, weak king. He is in control of how the king will re respond to Esther when she goes in. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He is the one who works all things according to his plan, who holds every atom in place. There is no surprising him. Mordecai is, at this point in the story, he, he's distant from the Jewish people. They, all went, they largely went back to Israel um, some years ago. And he could have thought, my people have gone back to Jerusalem. Maybe my God has gone with them. Maybe God is distant from me now. And hearing this decree that all of God's people are to be put to death, 
could have thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much alone here. Is God even aware of what's going on right now? Does he even ca- does he care? Is God in control? And we can think much the same. Is God in control in my life? It can be a question on our minds and on our lips. In ordinary moments and, and louder in suffering, is God in my life? Where is he? Is he in control? We can think that he's like a, a divine watchmaker who, who sets a watch going and then just leaves it. That he just makes the world and then just leaves it to run. And then and it just carries on with an accord. Or perhaps more likely, we can think that he gets involved in our lives sometimes. Like, you know those times when we really pray and we really seek God? Oh, then God will get involved. That there are a few moments, there are a few big moments in our lives where God will act in our lives. But most of the time, he, 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 he just leaves us to it. He just delegates it all to us. We can think that he isn't involved in our, in our, kind of our dull nine-to-five job or a painful health situation or painful relationship. That, that he's distant from these things. And with such a view of God, it is hard to leave the comforts of the palace. It's hard to deny what the world would say is the best way we should live. And, 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 and live the life that Jesus calls us to, taking risks for him, sacrificing as we follow him. It's hard to, it's hard to go to Newcastle if you... I'm not really sure that God's in control of all things. What, what if he just leaves you hanging? What if it's like we're stuck between two worlds? We want to follow the way of Jesus, but we're never really fully trusting that we'll be okay if we do. Because what if he just leaves it? What if it's all down to us and we just make a wrong decision? What if we mess up? The book of Esther says to us that God is in control of our lives. That it isn't coincidence. It is not fate. My friends, the circumstances of your life aren't random or meaningless. Think about it. God decreed and ordained that you would be born, that you would live. That's that's a wild thought, because that means every one of your ancestors, your great-grandparent, your great-great-great-grandparent, and all the way back, they all had to make it past infancy, which is quite incredible. Um, And they all had to meet one other person and have a child with that person who would have DNA be passed down over thousands of years so that you'd be born. But God decreed it, and here you are. He has ordained your life. He has planned your life. He has no part in sin and evil, but he is in control over every aspect of our lives. We can trust him because he is at work in the detail. He doesn't just get involved in our lives sometimes. No, he rules and reigns in all things. And like Esther can only leave the comfort of the palace if she knows that God is in control, we can live boldly the lives God calls us to, not trusting in worldly comforts, but trusting in him who rules and reigns in all things. This is sometimes called the doctrine of providence. Providence is the marvelous working of God by which all the events and happenings in his universe accomplish the purpose he has in mind. This is how um, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. If you've not heard of that, it's a, kind of like a Christian FAQs, frequently asked questions. Um, and it's kind of developed by the church um, 
200 years ago, and it's a wonderful gift and helps us to understand questions like this. And so question 27 in these FAQs is, what is the doctrine of providence? And here's the answer it gives us. And I think it's a good answer, and it helps us get it. Does God's providence, it is almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It's good news, my friends, that God's providence is over the details of our lives. Because when we, when we think about them, we can, about our lives, we can think about where we are right now. We can think, look at those mistakes I've made in the past. Look at those regretful decisions I took. And that, and that time that I sinned in that really serious way. And that person's sin on my life and how that affected me. And we can think, my life's a mess. How, how could this be what God would want? If I'd done all these things differently, maybe God could work in my life. And couldn't Esther have thought the same? Like she could think, when she's, when she's here in this palace, she could think, well, maybe my family should have just gone back to Jerusalem with everyone else. And maybe if that had happened, it would all be fine. She could think, well, and if it wasn't for this evil decree from this king, I wouldn't have been taken against my will into this palace. Perhaps mistake and bad choices in the past and sin. Maybe all these things can rule in our lives, but no, providence says that all things are under God's sovereign plan, that we do not need to worry about having messed it up. But for such a time as this, God brought Esther into this place. There is no force outside of his control. In your life, wherever you find yourself, he is in control and he has a plan. I think it's an encouragement to us. The book of Esther is a book that's quite normal in many ways. It's quite like our day-to-day -day lives. In Esther, there aren't many dramatic miracles. There aren't any dramatic miracles. There aren't uh, pillars of fire. There aren't seas being split in two. There aren't multiplication of food. We just have a few individuals far from the rest of God's people without specific direction from God, without specific signs from God or any kind of supernatural communication, in the midst of a people who are very different to them, trying to, to do what is best, and, God's sovereign, and God is sovereignly at work in the midst of it. Like, here, here are some people who, who don't, it's not like Moses, burning bush. Like, we can be like, if, if I had that, I would know how to live my life, and I could be confident in the gods at work in my life. Here we have Esther and Mordecai in the middle of the situation that seems out of their control. It's out of their control because it's in God's control. But they can trust that he is in control here. Does God's providential rule of our lives then get rid of any input from us? Like, are our works now unimportant if God is in control of all things? See what Mordecai says to Esther in verse 14 at the end there. He says, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Mordecai is saying to Esther, perhaps this is why God has brought all of this about. Perhaps this is why you're in the position you're in. 
so that you can now speak to the king, that you can now do this. That God has providentially brought this all to pass for this reason. The rule of God doesn't mean that Esther can just sit back and relax in the comforts of the palace. No, it's an encouragement to her to do what's before her, knowing that her God has her back. God's plan for all of creation involves us, and it's his good gift to give us works to do. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, I often think that Ephesians is it's like quadruple strength squash, and there's lots in there, but we're just going <laughs> to get the bit we're looking at. Um, we, it says, we are his workmanship. That's a wonderful idea. That we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared, he planned, he decided before the creation of the world, not only to make you, but to make, the thing, make things for you to do. And how does he describe these things, these works? Pointless? Meaningless? No, he describes them as good. They've got God's stamp of approval. These works don't save us. No, it's entirely the work of Jesus that saves us. But drawing us into his life, we now, he now has stuff for us to do. He has things for us to get on with. And knowing his sovereign power enables us to do this. God's providence means that God has you where you are right now. And it means that he has prepared good works for you where you are right now for such a time as this. They might not look how we expect, not particularly glamorous or spiritual. They may just seem very normal, like a typical Christian life. In, in day-to-day jobs that, that can feel often quite pointless and we're not sure why we're there, in the daily monotony of, of just daily tasks, as our lives are complicated by restrictions and limitations that we didn't think would be there when we were younger, He's involved in all these details. He's involved in all the details of your life. And he has you in these things for a reason. It's not empty. You can trust him with these things. We don't need to seek some unlocking of special purpose in our life. We'll be concerned that we're missing out. I've heard people say that I just need to, essentially I need to work really, really hard to hear God's secret plan for my life. And then everything will be different. That's not true. Instead, it's walking faithfully in what God has for us right now. Where has God put you now? What, who is in your life because of where you live, what you do with your days? What opportunities do you have? God has good stuff for you to do. I remember years ago, I was in a, in a, in a job. I didn't really enjoy it. I was um, working. My office was the, the staff kitchen. So I had endless small talk. Everyone came in to make their, their drinks. I'm, I'm not the best at small talk, so it was very long. Um, I didn't know why I was there. I didn't really enjoy it. it there were was some good like, benefits of it. It was work, and I was grateful for it. And I, I don't really know all of the reasons as to why I was there. Like, we don't have all of the meaning now. But I, I think of, um, I had one colleague. Um, and we, we, we got on quite well. We became friends. I invited him to church, didn't come. I invited him to home group, didn't come. Um, I got to share the gospel with him a few times, which was uh, wonderful. But nothing really came from it. Um, and then I left. And then a good friend of mine 
started working there. And, and he got to know the same guy, and they became good friends. And still nothing really happened there. But because of that, another guy was invited to church, and he had the gospel, and he became a Christian. And he was redeemed. Was that why I was in that job? So that I could kind of start a friendship that someone else would then take over and someone would come to faith? Maybe. I don't really know. I think that was part of it. I won't know all of the reasons. My friends, the meaningfulness of your life does not depend on your ability to know the meaning or whether others acknowledge it at all. We generally don't know the meaning of the things in our lives, the things that, that can just feel mundane day to day. But part of the reward in the new creation, I'm going to finish with this, is that there will be an unveiling of the meaning. Jesus says that on that final day, when creation is remade on that final day of judgment, that they will, people will see the meaning of something of their lives. They will, they will see what has happened. And they will then say to him, I don't remember doing that. Like, when did that happen? I don't remember. I don't remember that. I don't remember giving you a cup to drink. I don't remember clothing you. Like, I was just in Nottingham, doing my day-to-day -day life, going to church, trying to live faithfully, doing these few small things. Where have you gotten all this from, Jesus? And, and the king will say, you don't realize the meaning of all you've done. Here it is. The meaningfulness of our lives doesn't depend on our ability to know the meaning. There will be a day when we'll see it. God is at work in his sovereign power. He has us where he has us for a reason. He has good things for us to do right now. And so we can trust him. And so we can live for him. And we can have faith in the, in the small parts of our lives. Your little story is a part of God's great symphony of creation. And he had you in mind when he created the world. He had the plan for your life in mind. Esther could leave the comforts of the palace, risking her life, knowing that God was providentially ruling in all things and was at work in bringing her to the palace for this time. We can trust that God is providentially ruling in all things in our lives. That all things in our lives come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. We can think about even the most mundane elements of our lives and take hope that it is not the result of chance or fate, but comes from him. We don't know what tomorrow brings, but we do know that he is sovereign in it, that he is our good God, and he is in control.